0: So, here we are, two days before the 2020 election, and I'm not sure what kind of church experience you've had in your past regarding politics. Uh, Perhaps your pastor never dared to speak about it, or perhaps they spoke a little too bluntly about it. Maybe you dreaded church every four years because you knew you were going to get a lecture on who to vote for, and most of the time you disagreed. Uh, Maybe you even left a church family over this, suffering from fractured relationships, losing community, maybe even a bit of your faith. Uh, Or maybe you've been longing in the past to have someone address these complex issues, to think critically, and all you received from the pulpit was radio silence. Well, in our series, which we're in the third and final week of, Citizens of Heaven, I'm hoping to suggest this third way. And I will not tell you who to vote for, and that's because I don't believe that that's my calling as a pastor. My responsibility is to keep this community attentive to God. To encourage and teach the Christian discipline of discernment. To help you as best as I can to discern which of these candidates, character, and policies are most in line with the creative intentions of God. You might say that these three weeks, they could have been called the problem, posture, and possibility of politics. Come on, is that not some classic pastoral alliteration? I think there was at least five Ps there. Um, week one was about, praise the Lord, thank you very much. Week one was about the problem, the problem with politics, which is that politics often wants more than we can give it as Christians. Uh, our full allegiance belongs only to God. And that's why the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, of Jesus as Lord must always be on the forefront of any political engagement for Christians. If not, it becomes way too easy to bow down to a donkey or an elephant. Week two was about our posture as disciples as we engage in politics. Here, I spoke about the need to be spiritually formed and our church's value of formation, to have our character shaped by the spirit into the image of Jesus. Now this is important because in proper Christian ethics the means and the ends are always interconnected. This is to say that for a Christian achieving any political end, you know, whether that has to do with taxes, with marriage, with immigration reform, with education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, All important things, but the ends do not justify the means, which is to say the way or the manner in which we engage to bring any policy about. Because as Christians, we have to remember this. We have to remember that the means of Jesus, the way Jesus enacts his saving power, the way he becomes enthroned on high, the way he inaugurates the kingdom, is the way of the cross. And he invites all those who follow him to daily pick up their cross. And then this week we get to the possibility of politics, which I think aligns well with our church's value of flourishing. And as I talked over the past few weeks with Uh, the previous pastor, Pastor Deedee, with the elders, with other folks from the church. One of the things that I've learned is that this church really cares about loving and serving the community of Iowa City. I've learned about the beginnings of this church, about the severe flooding of 2008, and um, the efforts to respond to that. That this church had. I've learned about many other ways since then that this church has engaged the community. Um, and I've been so inspired by our church's burgeoning connection with Inside Out. So I want to start by encouraging you, encouraging you, church, that all of this work, all of this labor that we sing about is not in vain. Indeed. You are embodying Jesus's prayer that God's will would be done in Iowa City as it is in heaven. So today, as I talk about flourishing as the possibility of politics, my hope is that your imagination is recaptured by the vision of the scriptures and that your soul is filled afresh with hope that even in this time of Corona, God is indeed at work restoring, redeeming, and renewing all things. So as I said this in the first week, I want to reiterate again. I believe that no political ideology is sophisticated and nuanced enough to anticipate and heal the complex, multifaceted brokenness of humanity. Only God in Christ is capable of that. And so to him, to his ideals and purposes, we give our allegiance. And as we vote and engage in our civil duties, we must do so by asking who or what best promotes human flourishing in alignment with the creative intention of God, flourishing in alignment with the creative intention of God. Now, I'm convinced that this isn't just the purpose of voting, but the purpose of politics as well. Uh, Aristotle said as much. Uh, he said that the telos, which is the, the purpose, the end, the means, not the, uh, the, the ultimate purpose, right? The telos of humanity, he said, is eudaimonia. And this word often gets translated as uh, happiness. But more and more scholars are translating it as flourishing. And that's because happiness, you know, is maybe more of an emotion. While flourishing, in the way that Aristotle talked about it, is this comprehensive state of being. Uh, It actually comes from the Greek. You. Meaning. Good. We talked about this in the first week, Euangelion, the good news. This is Eudaimonia, good. And Daemon, similar to demon, spirit or soul, sometimes the self. Um, so the telos for human beings, says Aristotle, should be Eudaimonia, the good life, human flourishing. And he said this comes about by living a life of virtues of character formation, not terribly different from what we talked about last week. And he says that an individual can only fulfill their telos to become a moral and flourishing human being within a well-constructed political community. He said, quote, we become just by the practice of just actions. Self-controlled by exercising self-control and courageous by performing acts of courage. Lawgivers make the citizens good by inculcating good habits in them. And this is the aim of every lawgiver. If he or she does not succeed in doing that, their legislation is a failure. It is in this that a good constitution differs from a bad one. So the possibility of politics for Aristotle is helping humanity flourish. And one of the greatest political philosophers of the 20th century, the Jewish uh, German American Hannah Arndt agreed. She said, the ultimate end of human acts is eudaimonia, happiness in the sense of living well, which all men desire all acts are but a different means chosen to arrive at it. And she's also famous for saying, quote, political questions are far too serious to be left to the politicians, Unquote. And that's why we as a church are engaging in these discussions today. That's why we need to ask the question, do we have a robust enough vision of God's ultimate plan of redemption, God's telos, God's vision of eudaimonia, of flourishing? Do we have a robust enough vision that it informs and orients our voting, our political discourse and engagement, and even our ordinary day-to-day lives? James K.A. Smith, who um, we've quoted many times before, he said this, We need a vision of the good that animates our collaboration in common life. What unites a people and us is a project, something we're after together. We collaborate in a common life insofar as we find goods to pursue in common, And we establish institutions, systems, and rhythms that reinforce the pursuit of those goods. Now, I believe this is ultimately about a hope for the coming kingdom, ruled by the risen King Jesus. So, this vision of eudaimonia, of flourishing, I suggest that the ultimate vision of that, the most compelling, is found in the scriptures particularly in Revelation. I just want to read a couple verses from Revelation towards the end, 21 and 22. This is 21, three through five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated at the throne said, I am making everything new. And in Revelation 22, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You see, the Christian vision of flourishing, painted in broad strokes by Revelation 21 and 22, alongside our text today, this Christian vision of flourishing is far more compelling than anything Aristotle could have dreamed up. But it includes And transcends what he had to offer. This is the possibility of politics animated by God's vision of the future. Now, anytime you talk about the future, uh, particularly in regards to politics, I think we have to remember how easy it is to fall into a ditch on either side. On one side, There's this ditch of resignation. I mean, we think about how politics and government, it's going astray. It's in the hands of forces more powerful than the church. And there's very little we can do about it. The best we can do, perhaps, is go with the flow. You know, do our best not to compromise. Or maybe we should withdraw completely from any cultural or political engagement and and wait for heaven. Because that's the future vision anyway. So let's just wait for that to happen. Try not to sin too much in the meantime. Now this view is plagued with despairing cynicism. And there's a better way. But on the other side is the ditch of triumphalism. Here we think again about how politics and culture is going astray. But we have the power to change it. If only we would believe in ourselves and use any means of power we can, we could create the future. We could usher in the kingdom. The future is in our hands now. Well, this view lacks humility, realism, and discernment. And it often finds its adherents in bed with politicians and power structures. That are themselves antithetical to God's kingdom. The problem here says Duke scholar, Jeremy Begbie. The problem is that quote, both paths assume that our present determines our future. What could be is controlled by what now is. But when the biblical writers present us with a vision for the future, they refuse to move from the present to the future. You see, they move from the future to the present. They are captivated above all by a conviction about God will finally do. The panorama unveiled in Revelation 21 and 22. A future when God will dwell with his people in the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. A future promised by and guaranteed in the raising of Jesus from the dead. And in light of this ultimate hope, they dare to claim that this future can start now. They tell us that their lives are being breathed into by the breath of God. Being re-energized by God's spirit. That they are already enjoying the life of the future. God's future which means even today there is a future that is interrupting it's erupting into the present through God's spirit a future we do not have to generate out of our own resources but a future promised by God and available now the scriptures that we read today they give us a compelling vision a biblical imagination for the shared project of human flourishing that God invites us into without falling into the ditches of resignation or triumphalism. Let's turn to our Isaiah text. The first three verses of Isaiah's prophetic poem, they read this quote, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So from the very beginning, we learn that all these promises and prophecies and possibilities, they're reliable because of the Spirit. The Spirit brings the future, pulls the future into the present. And, And here's the thing. The future, according to Isaiah's vision, the future for God's people is good news. This is that word that we spent so long talking about two weeks ago. Good news. The Hebrew, which in Isaiah is written, is baser, which we talked about. And just like its Greek counterpart, euangelion, good news, it often refers to the good news of a military victory. And this good news, this good news of a military victory in Isaiah, it's for the poor. It's for the broken hearted, for the captives, the blind, the prisoner. He's talking both figuratively and literally because God ultimately has victory over all of God's oppressors. I mean, this good news is infinitely better than the good news of Rome and Caesar and all other earthly rulers. There's good news of a future that we can live into now, which means we can't fall into the ditch of resignation, of despairing cynicism. But also look at the end of verse three. Isaiah in this prophecy says, we will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Here, agency is given to God as well. So we cannot fall into the ditch of triumphalism either. That by earthly power, we can bring about the future. In fact, if we go all the way to the last verse of this prophecy, verse 11, this is what it says. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So there's this sense, even in this beautiful vision that invites us in, there's this sense in which we can never make something grow. Right? No one can get inside of a seed and, and sort of turn on the genetic component that makes the seed spring forth and bud. I mean, maybe someone can in one of the labs at the university. I'm not sure, but most of us cannot. Most of us can't. The blessing of life and growth is miraculously within the seed. It doesn't need to be engineered by us. So while we co-labor with the spirit for flourishing, it is finally God's work. So in thinking about the election this Tuesday, you might find yourself drifting off the path towards either ditch, resignation or triumphalism. And I'd encourage you to let your heart be steadied by these words of Isaiah's. Jesus was fond of these words in the gospel of Luke in in chapter four. This is what it says about Jesus. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he unrolls it, and he found the place within the scroll where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled back up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. It says fastened. I mean, imagine if this is my sermon. Fred just reads the text. I stand up here and sit down. That's it. So everyone's looking at him and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, pulls the future into the present. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, you know, this beautiful prophecy by Isaiah This promise that has carved a deep longing into your souls, O Israel? Well, I'm going to fulfill it, and I'm starting today. Our New Testament lesson today, it's the ending of what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse, found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And it's this series of teachings by Jesus about the future. And it gets weird. If you think scripture's boring, read some of that. It is strange. It is weird. It'll pique your interest. Now it begins with, with kind of these questions in Matthew 24 says this verse three, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They didn't want anyone else hearing what they're about to ask. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? This is after they just walked past the temple and Jesus says all these stones of this temple, this is going to fall apart. So they say, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples are asking for a sign of the end of the age. The disciples, like so many of us, want to know about the future. They want to know when Jesus as Messiah, as anointed one, which is what that means. They want to know when he'll be King. And in Jesus's fashion, he answers them with parables. uh, Some more cryptic than others. You see, Jesus knows that as he approached the cross, his disciples will be tempted. They'll be tempted with resignation some will want to withdraw. They'll, they'll want to run away from society uh, with the Essenes, which this Jewish sect called the Essenes. They'll want to go build communities in the mountains. While others will be tempted with triumphalism. Right? They'll want to join with the zealots. They'll want to use any means necessary, even the sword, even violence, to procure the kingdom, to make sure that the leader they want has power. And Jesus then at the end of this discourse, at the end of this Olivet Discourse about the future, is when he gives us this image that is politically charged. Our text today, I'll read the first few verses. In 2531, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations. Could it be any more political? And he will separate one people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the king will say to those on his right. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the words Jesus speaks to his followers in the future. Inherit the kingdom. In other words, receive it as a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot usher it in yourselves. You must Receive it. It is an inheritance. It's a flat out denial of the temptation of triumphalism. But then Jesus continues in verse 36 For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous, those who he says will inherit the kingdom. They come to him and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Well, when Jesus talks about the future, about his future kingdom, it has unbelievable ramifications on the present. Again, Jesus pulls the future into the present and with it, he smashes all possibilities of resignation for the faithful. The way we treat the least of these today is the way Jesus feels we have treated him. I mean, to Jesus, the future promises of the kingdom of God, right? That biblical vision of heavenly flourishing is meant to create in us a faithful imagination for contemporary flourishing. So what does a life look like that pulls the future into the present? What does it look like for an individual to promote human flourishing that has political and societal impact that actually brings the words of Jesus to life? In closing, I want to share the story of John Woolman. Um, This is told by Parker Palmer in his book, Healing the Heart of Democracy. John Woolman, he lived from 1720 to To 1772, he was a Quaker who lived in colonial New Jersey, among other merchants and farmers in a Quaker community called the Society of Friends. Excuse me. And the Society of Friends, their affluence depended on enslaving human beings who, like them, had names and families, histories and hopes. Woolman was a tailor and he did not own slaves and he was torn by the blatant contradiction between the Quaker belief in human equality and the fact that many Quaker gentry were slaveholders. Now, instead of trying to make that tension go away through resignation or using the violence of triumphalism, he insisted that his community hold the tension with honesty and resolve it with integrity by fleeing, freeing their slaves. You see, Quakers, it's interesting in their community, Quakers make decisions by consensus instead of majority rule. Right. So everyone has to agree. And woman's congregation was unable to reach unity on his proposal to free slaves. Nonetheless, persuaded by woman's integrity in the matter, they agreed to support him as he pursued his concern. So for the next 20 years, 20 years, Woolman made frequent trips up and down the East Coast, visiting fellow Quakers in their homes, in their shops, at their farms, preaching in their meetings Now, he spoke with them about the heartbreaking contradiction between their faith and their practice, and he was always true to his beliefs, personally embodying the future in the present as he fought for flourishing for all. Listen to this. He wore undyed white clothing because he was told that dye was a product of slave labor. At meals, he would fast rather than eat food prepared or served by slaves, even if he stayed to talk. So he's a guest in someone's house. Think about how awkward that would be. And if he learned that he had inadvertently benefited from a slave's work, he would pay that person his or her due without calling attention to the exchange. So he would go behind the master's back when he was staying as a guest to personally pay one of the slaves Woolman and his family, they paid a great price for his consistent witness to where he discerned the spirit of Christ calling him. He bore that consistent witness for 20 long years until what the Quakers became the first religious community in America to free their slaves some 80 years before the Civil War. In 1783, the Quakers petitioned the Congress to correct the complicated evils and unrighteous commerce created by the enslavement of human beings. So that's 1783. Then almost uh, 45 years later, from 1827 onward, the Quakers played a key role in developing the Underground Railroad. You know, that informal network of secret routes and safe houses used by black slaves to escape to freedom in North America or Canada. Now, what's so powerful about Woman's story is the way it interweaves patience and reliance on God with clear conviction and a vision about what flourishing looks like in God's kingdom. He lived a life in response to that vision. When his Quaker brothers and sisters refused to abandon slavery, woman could have easily fallen into resignation. He could have given up on the seemingly impossible issue and figured, well, actually I kind of benefit from this system as well. And all of my superiors and people like me, they don't seem to see an issue with it. So I'll resignate. I'll I'll give in to the issue, or maybe he could have just left the community as a whole. I mean, equally tempting must have been triumphalism. If the slaveholders he talked with wouldn't change their minds on their own accord, perhaps he could gather up a militia and force change. You see, woman chose neither, but instead was both patient and persistent in partnering with the spirit to, again, pull the future into the present. As we approach election day this Tuesday, I want us to be encouraged by the future. Not the future of this week. Not this month when we may find out who our next president is. Not the future of 2021, when we can finally say goodbye to the year that 2020 has been. Or 2024, when we can say goodbye to whoever this next president will be. But the future political vision of King Jesus on his throne. Here's some other words from Revelation. These come in chapter 7. I hope that these will assure your soul this morning of the goodness of the future for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lately as my son who is a year and a half old uh, starts crying for one reason or another, whether he bumps his head standing up underneath the table or whether he's upset that we say three bananas is enough and he wants a fourth or a fifth. He, he loves bananas, but for whatever reason, he starts crying. Uh, I've been trying to gently and kindly wipe those tears from his eyes. And every time I do, I'm overwhelmed thinking about the gentle, kind, and loving God that rules from the throne. Friends, no president or political party is ever going to treat you with that level of kindness and care. If your heart starts racing as the poll numbers come in this week, remember this and sleep well. Let's pray. Thankfully you, Lord Jesus, the lamb of God are perched squarely, joyfully and sovereignly at the center of the throne of thrones. Not a donkey, Or elephant, the symbols of mere human beings doing mere American politics, but you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you are reigning over all things for your glory and working in all things for our good. Fill our hearts with a vision of what is and what will be forever. Amen.